Well, good morning, Strong Tower Bible Church. There is a word from the Lord today, and we will begin in Acts chapter 5, and from there go over to John chapter 1. Acts chapter 5, we are in a series entitled, Come As You Are. Is anybody glad that the Lord invites us to come? That we don't have to get cleaned up first because there's no way we can get cleaned up. We don't have to get right before we come because there's no way we can get right. He is the one who cleanses us. He is the one who makes us righteous by his grace. So we come as we are to the God who will make us like himself. So would you join me in prayer as we ask God to bless this word today? The sermon will be entitled, Come and See. Come and see. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that we get to worship you. Because there was a time when we didn't know you. We were lost. We were without hope. We were in despair. We were sons and daughters of disobedience. But Lord, you came to us in the person of your son, Jesus. You came to us. You sought us out because there's no one who understands and there is no one who seeks after God. So you came to seek and to save those who are lost. Thank you, Lord, that your mission was fulfilled in me, that you found me and that you saved me. And I know, Lord, that there are people listening to my voice and watching this worship service who can testify that they once were lost, but now they are found. And not only, Lord, are we found, but, Lord, we are kept. And we just want to say thank you. Thank you for the security and the safety that is in your love. My, my, my. And we thank you for how perfect your love is. And because of that, it casts out fear. For what can man do to us? What can anything created in heaven or on earth or even under the earth in hell below do to us to separate us from your love? Nothing. No one can separate us from your love. And it's through your love that we're victorious and that we're more than conquerors. Help me to preach now and help your people to hear now and help all of us to do now. We thank you, Lord, that when you speak, you expect a response. You not only want to teach us and fill our minds with truth because that is essential and necessary, but, Lord, you want the truth to transform and change how we live. Thank you, Lord, that it starts from within, from a touched heart, a changed heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would change hearts so that lives would be changed today. And if there's someone listening or watching who doesn't know you, who has not embraced Jesus as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. For I ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. The Christian faith was born in the crucible of suffering, weakness, and political persecution. I said the Christian faith, the faith that we hold so dear, 
was born in the crucible of suffering, weakness, and even political persecution. The Christian faith was founded by what the Bible calls a suffering servant, who the Bible says was oppressed and afflicted. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says that he was oppressed and afflicted. And so the founder of our faith, the Lord of our lives, he was a suffering servant, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he was also one who was oppressed. And to be oppressed means that Others in power are pressing down upon you in an unjust way. They are harming you. They are hurting you. They are hindering you. They are seeking to hold you back. And the Lord came into this world as a suffering servant who understood oppression because he came to set free those of us who were and are oppressed. First and foremost, from sin, from the grip of Satan, but also those of us who are oppressed not only by sin and Satan, but by systems that seek to hold us down, hold us back. Our Lord understands oppression, which is why those who tend to respond to him tend to respond to him knowing that he understands what they're going through that he understands oppression, so therefore the oppressed are able to call out to him and reach him and get to know him in a qualitative way that has a depth to it that many times others who are not oppressed don't understand. You see, Jesus came for the oppressed, but he also came to save the oppressors. This is why I believe that the faith of the oppressed has always been greater than the religion of the oppressor. And the faith of the slave in this country has always been more genuine than the religion of the slave master. Because the slaves, my ancestors, were able to identify with this one who understood and underwent oppression. So our faith, the Christian faith, was forged in this kind of setting by this kind of savior to save these kinds of sinners. You see, the Christian faith was birthed by the weak, by the meek, by the lowly, because Jesus said, as we studied last week, he says, I am meek and lowly. And so the Christian faith was founded by one who was meek and weak. It was birthed among the weak, and the Christian faith, thank God, was birthed for the weak. Which is why, as Pastor Jerry read from the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord would say, blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The humble, the broken, those who understand their need for grace, that that's who our Savior came to lift up and empower. The Christian faith grew by the work of weak vessels who preached a powerful gospel. The Christian faith expanded exponentially by weak, dependent vessels like the one you're looking at and listening to right now who, who recognizes that this power 
is not from us. This power is from God, and this power finds its residence in cracked vessels. Thank God that he fills cracked vessels with his presence and his power that we might go out and proclaim the gospel, not only in word, but also in deed, but also to plant churches and to make disciples. So when the Christian faith began to move across the then known world, it was led and orchestrated by weak men and weak women. Weak men like Paul, who says that he boasts in his weakness. Can I get a witness? Weak folks like Timothy, who suffered under a spirit of timidity. Weak folks like Silas and Barnabas. Weak folks like Lydia. And weak folks like Phoebe and Priscilla. Weak men and women who were made strong through the grace and power of Jesus. So the Christian faith was forged in weakness. But somehow, over time, the Christian faith became a weapon for the strong to use over and against the weak, somehow over time. Somehow over time, the Christian faith became a weapon in such a way where the, the Crusades, it was about European domination and not about Christian evangelism. So when Europe would send soldiers into the Middle East, what we call it today, Palestine, to conquer for the cross, which is what the word crusade means, to conquer for the cross, they weren't there trying to set captives free. No, they were there to make captives and to take land in the Holy Land for various European empires. You see, over time, the Christian faith was hijacked by people who hijacked land from indigenous people. They came in the name of their God. They came in the name of manifest destiny. And they believed that their God, small g, called them to hijack land from the indigenous peoples that were in North America and South America. And they did it all in the name of the Lord. Over time, the Christian faith was used to justify enslaving African people that God made in his image and that God sent his son Jesus to set free from the shackles of sin, not necessarily from the shackles of enslavement, but we know God is the great liberator and emancipator who not only frees the soul, but will free the person. But my ancestors didn't need to be enslaved in the first place. But when these so-called Christians believed that it was their destiny to enslave others and they then found scriptures to twist and to misuse, to try and make it seem that God had cursed Africans and destined Africans to a life of slavery and inferiority. I began to look at this through the lens of Frederick Douglass, who said that the Christianity that was practiced by the enslaver, by the plantation owner, 
and the Christians who were complicit with the institution, he called that Christianity-ism. That was not Christianity. No wonder when they tried to give Christianity to the slaves, as if Africans didn't know Jesus before the slave trade, because yes, we did. Just read Acts chapter 8 and that'll tell you. Christianity was in Africa long before the enslaver and the colonizer got there. But here on the plantations, they gave my people a plantation version of Christianity, a plantation gospel, in order to make them docile and subservient and weak in the wrong way. And they kept telling the overseers to preach and to teach slaves, obey your master. And my ancestors were told that this was our destiny. This was our lot as prescribed by God. But we knew back then, even though we didn't have a lot of knowledge by way of reading and writing, we had a discernment from God where we knew that not only did that not sound right, we knew that that was not right. And it did not line up with the Christ on which our lives and our faith was founded. But I thank God we persevered through that midnight. You see, over time, the Christian faith became an outlet for oppressors and a vehicle for the violent. And even in our culture today in America, where white Western American Jesus ended up becoming the mascot of American evangelism or evangelicalism. I'll say that again, white Western American Jesus became the mascot of American evangelicalism. And sadly, in this hour, we are seeing the fruits of that decision where a great segment of the American church has chosen to support the empire more than they do the kingdom of God. They have come under Trump thinking that they have come under God. But time has revealed that the only one they came under was Trump because the way in which they live their lives emulate Trump more than it does Jesus, which means Trump was their discipler, not Jesus. And so we're in this day now where there are Christians more committed to the second amendment than they are to the second commandment. Now, I know that's not popular, but I'm so glad the Lord didn't call me to be popular. He called me to be faithful. He called me to be obedient. He called me to preach the word and leave the results to him. And every now and then, the church must stand up and not only be salt and light to the world, we've got to turn around and be salt and light to people who profess to be a part of the church. Because in this hour, the church must repent. Because judgment starts first in the house of God before it starts in the White House in Washington, D.C. We've got to get our act together and it will call for some of us to stand up to speak the truth in love and in the name of Jesus. The church is embracing violence 
The church is endorsing uprisings. The church is making light of people dying in the midst of insurrections by deflecting and blaming others as opposed to taking responsibility for helping create this mess. And when it comes to violence, there were many violent revolutionaries in Jesus' day. So what we see today is not anything new. People committing violence in the name of their God. It's nothing new. It occurred in Jesus' day. But I'm so glad that he was not one of those kinds of violent revolutionaries. You see, in Jesus' day, there was Barabbas. We know about Barabbas because at the trial of Jesus, which was an unfair trial, that the church or the religious establishment were envious of Jesus. And they wanted to put him to death because he kept showing them up and confronting them in their hypocrisy. They couldn't stand him anymore, so they set him up. But they didn't know that as they were setting him up that it was already ordained by God for the lamb to die. And so they didn't, quote unquote, kill him. No, he laid his life down so that he could be killed. And they set him up with the help of the Roman government. They influenced the crowd to, to, to chant, crucify him, when Pilate was saying, I, I, I can let Barabbas go. Surely you want Jesus to go, not Barabbas. Surely you want this man. Because Barabbas was a thief, the Bible says. But yet the Bible says he was a robber. The Bible says that he was a murderer. The Bible says that Barabbas was a rebel and he led a group of rebels because he was an insurrectionist coming up against the Roman Empire to try to set the Jewish people free by force. So Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a threat to Rome more so than Jesus was from a physical place. But the people chose the insurrectionists. They chose Barabbas. And then the Bible lets us know in the book of Acts chapter 5 that there were other revolutionaries and insurrectionists who walked the earth during the time of Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 35, Gamaliel, who happens to be a teacher of the law, he speaks up in the midst of a council where the Jews are persecuting the apostles, and this is what he says. And he, Gamaliel, said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. You see, the Jewish people were an oppressed people. They had gone from being a slave to the Babylonians, to the Medo-Persians, to the Greeks, and even the Romans. To the Babylonians, they were 
enslaved in Iraq. But God allowed them to go free under Cyrus the Persian, and they came back home to their land. But when they came back home to their land, they were never truly free. They were always under the tutelage of another nation. And there were Jewish people who could not stand that reality because they would be overtaxed and their monies would be used to build uh, statues and cathedrals dedicated to Roman emperors. The people didn't have true legislative power. They were upset. So the Barabbases would rise up, the Thutises would rise up, the Judases would rise up, and even Another Judas by the name of Judas Maccabees, under the Maccabean Revolt, they rose up around 167 B.C. So the people were known for rising up in revolution. But Jesus was different. He was different. He was a nonviolent revolutionary of love and truth. Jesus was different from the other revolutionaries. He was a revolutionary of love and truth. He said that his kingdom would not come in by violence, especially violence perpetrated by his followers. He told Peter, put your sword away. It's not about violence for the Lamb of God. He would suffer violence as the Lamb of God, to set us free from the penalty of sin. And Jesus, you couldn't grow up in that era and not be affected by what you saw around you. Yes, he was and is the Son of God, but he was also the Son of Man, who grew up in the north, in Galilee, in Capernaum, in This place where they say, can anything good come out of Nazareth, where there were legions of Roman troops stationed there. And so Jews in the south despised Jews in the north because of their mixture with the heathens. And so Jesus grew up around this, seeing military oppression everywhere, seeing when he was born there was this Edomian Fake Jew, uh, uh, apostate, non-believer in God, who was the king of the Jews, but who was more faithful to Rome than he was to the people of God. Jesus grew up in this environment, but he chose not to liberate his people through violence. He chose to liberate his people through love. Now, he knew that the people he would reach were impacted and influenced by that culture of insurrectionism. He he knew that. And the guys he called, the 12, to disciple, he knew that they struggled with national oppression. He knew they wanted to be free. And many of the people who were looking for the Messiah, they were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them nationally and politically, which is why many of them missed Jesus, because he did not come for that purpose and reason, his first coming. Oh, he'll take care of all that on the second coming. Believe me, the government will be on his shoulder. Believe me, he will deal with the armies of the Antichrist. Believe me, that's coming. But first he came as a lamb. And many people missed him because they were so focused politically on what they wanted that they missed the spiritual reality of the lamb. But he called guys like James and John. 
who were classified as the sons of thunder. Now, you know you got to be uh, kicking up some rocks if you're going to be called a son of thunder. you you got to be a bad boy or, or, or a bad tag team combination. Don't mess with the brothers, James and John. They'll dot your eye. They'll knock your teeth out. They're the sons of thunder. And when the Samaritans did not want to receive Jesus as he was heading into Jerusalem for his final days, it was these two guys who said, hey, 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 Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and blow this village up? <laughs> and Jesus said, look here, man. You don't know what spirit is on you right now. The, the, the Son of Man didn't come to destroy lives. The Son of Man came to save lives. So Jesus had to shut those revolutionaries down from asking God to endorse their hatred for the Samaritans and blow them up. And they had been walking with Jesus for three years. And Jesus also had in his group a man by the name of Simon the zealot, according to Matthew chapter 10, verse 4, in the NIV version, there was a brother named Simon the zealot. And that was a political term, that he was a zealot. He had zeal to overthrow the Roman government, but the Lord welcomed him in to the team. <laughs> and then we know about Peter. We know Peter was packing we know he had his fisherman's knife, his sword on him, and he would use it in a nanosecond and cut somebody's ear off. So Jesus has some violent dudes. He has some grimy dudes, some gritty dudes. <laughs> I'm so glad he didn't just say, you know what, I'll only work with you when you get your act together. No, he invited those guys to come as they were because he knew his love, not law, could change their hearts and thus change their actions over time. In the book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which was written by Dr. Howard Thurman, one of the mentors and professors of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who taught him at Boston University, Dr. Thurman was also a Morehouse man. He was a pastor. He was a theologian. And this is what he wrote in a book that was published in 1949. He said, the thing which makes Jesus most significant is not the way in which he resembled his fellows, but the way in which he differed from all the rest of them. <laughs> so Jesus was not like those rabbis. He differed from them, grew up in the same environment, but he chose another path. He chose another way. So as we go over to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, Jesus' ministry is just beginning. John the Baptist has baptized Jesus already. John was told to baptize, and his baptism was a baptism of repentance and even preparation for the lamb who was to come. People were to turn to get ready for the one who was to baptize in the Holy Spirit, and even later with fire and judgment. But John is preaching, and he says in John chapter 1, I didn't know who the Messiah was. I was just told to preach, and God would show me who he was. 
So the baptizing brought Jesus out. John is baptizing, baptizing, and then here comes Jesus, and the Spirit tells John, that's him. You've been baptizing all these other people, but the Spirit didn't tell you that they were the one. Other folks thought that John was the Messiah. John's like, no, I'm not him. But one day he's doing his job, and the Spirit says, that's him. Jesus comes out and says, John, baptize me. John is so broken, he says, no, I feel that you need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, no, you must do this for all righteousness. And John baptizes Jesus, and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So in John chapter 1, John looks up, and he sees Jesus walking. And he will say to people, there he is. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then there was another day, as we're going to read right now, he's with two of his disciples. And he's going to say, look, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. And let's see what happens with those two disciples. We'll begin reading in John chapter 1, verse 35. The Bible says, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Is anybody glad that John didn't say, no, no, I can't let y'all go. Y'all got to stay with me. No, John was the kind of leader. He was the kind of pastor who recognized that these are God's people, not his he had a role to play for a season and a reason in the lives of these folks, but he was ultimately there to point folks to Jesus. And once he literally pointed Jesus out, two of his disciples rolled out and John didn't try to stop him because he knew that was his purpose, to point people to Jesus. And so the Bible says in verse 37 that the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus, verse 38. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? All right, stop and pause. Whenever God asks questions, he's never asking questions to gain information because he's omniscient and God knows all things. He even knows all the possibilities of all things, of what could happen if you do this or if you do that. God knows everything, not Dr. Stephen Strange from the Avengers. God knows every scenario. God knows everything. So when God asked Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. And when Jesus asked these brothers, what do you seek? It was for them to dig deep into their hearts and answer the Lord properly. You see, what do you seek could also mean, what are you two brothers looking for? What are y'all looking for? What are your expectations? What kind of leader do you think I am? What kind of leader are you brothers looking for? Concerning this verse, the late Warren Wearsby wrote, Jesus was forcing them to define their purposes and goals. Were they looking for a revolutionary leader to overthrow Rome? 
If so, they had better join the zealots, not follow Jesus. So Jesus asked these guys, what are you looking for? What kind of rabbi are you seeking to come under? What kind of Messiah are you looking for? Now, the Bible is going to let us know in a minute that one of them was Andrew. Now, the other disciple is unnamed of John the Baptist. And usually this is an indicator that it is the identity of the person writing the gospel, which is John the Beloved. So John the Beloved and Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist. They see Jesus, they start following Jesus, but Jesus wants to know, what are you looking for? You see, the question is not whether or not you will be a revolutionary. That, that, that's not the question. The question is, what kind of revolutionary will you be? Let me say that again. The question is not whether or not you will be a revolutionary. The question is, what kind of revolutionary will you be? And as for me, I plan on and I will be and I am, by the grace of God, a revolutionary of love. I am a revolutionary of peace. I am a revolutionary of grace. I am a revolutionary of mercy. I am a revolutionary of justice and a revolutionary of truth. Not a revolutionary of the empire. I love America, but I'm more excited to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's where my first allegiance is to. So when we go back into the text, verse 38, then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, rabbi, which is to say when translated, teacher, where are you staying? <laughs> where are you staying? Verse 39, he said to them, come and see. You got to love that. He said to them, come and see. This speaks to the intentionality and the humility and the welcoming spirit of our God, who being the most high, came into earth as the most low, who made time and took time for two regular guys. He had the time to say to them, come and see, because our God loves people. And we live in an age where we have to distinguish between people who love agendas versus people who actually love people. Transformational leaders who, who are into people versus transactional people who are only into agendas and accomplishments and goals. That stuff has its place, but it ought to be second place to being a transformational leader to loving the people that you're trying to help. And it shows up when you take time and you say, come and see. Again, how many rabbis in that day would take the time to be with two guys who were just with that guy, John the Baptist? Jesus says, come and see. Verse 39 says, they came and saw my Lord. He gave them a simple invitation, come and see. And the Bible says they responded to that invitation by coming and seeing. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. 
Now, it was about the 10th hour, parenthetical comment. They said, where are you staying? Where are you hanging out? Jesus says, come and see. They responded to his invitation, and they went, and they remained with him that day. Now, the word remain in John's gospel is one of his favorite words. It's the same word that's translated in chapter 15 as abide. It's the Greek word mene, to, 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 to remain, to abide, or to hang out with. That, that, that's basically what it means, to hang out with. And so they remained with him, that is, they hung out with him that day. They chose to abide in his abode. Now, now, now I, I'm not going to chase this rabbit, because we know that Jesus, as the Bible says, he didn't have a place to lay his head. But, but, but there was a time he had a place of his own, because the Bible says they came and saw where he was staying. So Jesus had a house of some kind before he started his ministry of going without a house. So he has this house. They come and stay with him that day. They remain with him. They hang out with him. And this is important here. They were not satisfied in only meeting Jesus. They wanted to fellowship with Jesus. Oh, I wish I had a witness here. Because we got people that just want to meet him to get some fire insurance <laughs> so they don't have to go to hell. But there's some of us who want to meet him and thank God for fire insurance, but that's just a caveat. That, that, that's just a benefit. That, but, but that's not the motivation. I want to fellowship with him. I want to hang with him because there's nobody like him. There's nobody who talks like him. There's no one who teaches like him, who touches like him, who walks like him, who loves like him. I want to kick it with him. I just don't want to get something from him. And so they not only wanted to meet him, but they wanted to hang out with him. And as I use the remainder of my time, I want to show you at least three things from this text that will happen when you choose to remain with Jesus, when you choose to abide and hang out with Jesus. Because he says to you, come on and see. Come spend the day with me. There are at least three things from the text. Number one, you'll remember it. I'll tell you that. Number two, you'll tell others. And number three, you'll begin to discover your purpose because you remain with him for a day. Let's go with point number one. You will remember it. <laughs> I'm going back to verse 39. He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the 10th hour as I mentioned to you, those two disciples, one is Andrew, who's the brother of Peter. We'll see that in a minute. But the other disciple, who's unnamed, this is typically referred to as John the Beloved. Okay? And John is the one who's writing this gospel. He's the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation. And he did a lot of his writing on the Isle of Patmos that occurred sometime around 90, 95 AD. So let's just say for the sake of uh, 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 this sermon that they meet Jesus around AD 30. Let's just say they meet Jesus around AD 30, that John chapter one is occurring. John writes the revelation 
the Gospels, and even the Epistles, somewhere between 85 and 95 AD, which is upwards of 60 years after what happened here in John chapter 1. Mm -hmm. Hang with me now, hang with me. So he's giving an account because there were many other accounts that were being written about Jesus, but he was one of the inner circle, and, and, and he wrote a gospel story under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he comes at it from a different perspective as the synoptic or same eye uh, view gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that emphasize the humanity of Jesus. John is like, I want to talk to you about his deity. So he comes and writes his gospel between 85 and 90, upwards of 60 years after the events take place. Now, let me tell you something. I forget stuff I did yesterday. But somehow, this brother remembers something that happened 60 years ago. Not only that he met Jesus, I give you that, bro. But he's like, I remember the time I kicked it with him for the first time. What are you talking about? You see the parenthetical comment. Now, it was about the 10th hour. So homeboy is writing in 90 AD, talking about what happened in 30 AD and the time of day that it happened. It was about the 10th hour or about 10 o'clock in the morning. We stayed the whole day with Jesus. You see, that, that, that's what happens when you meet him. He will change your life. And he will make such an impression on you that 60 years later, you'll remember the time of day that you went to his house. So when you remain with him, you'll remember it. I hope you have, as part of your testimony, because you really don't have one without this, a beginning point, a time when you met him, a time when he became real to you. I, I hope and pray that you can look back in the eyes of your mind and say, I, I remember when I met him. I, 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 I may not know the date, but I remember the season that he changed my life. Now, I'm not talking about, about praying a sinner's prayer. Now, that has its place. Praying a prayer, calling out to the Lord. Paul talks about that in the book of Romans. But let me help some of you out. You don't see the apostles praying a prayer to Jesus to save them. No, no, their commitment with, to Jesus was not so much found in a sinner's prayer, but it was found in a sanctified life of following him as his disciples. You, you don't even see them getting baptized by Jesus. They're with Jesus baptizing other people. So, so, so we got to watch out for these Christian, the systematic theology boxes that we want to put people in to say, if you don't pray this way, and if you don't get baptized this way, you're not a Christian. But there are people like the thief on the cross who put faith in Christ, never got baptized, didn't pray a sinner's prayer except, Lord, remember me. And there are people on deathbeds who say, Lord, remember me. There are people who right before they die, they say, Lord, I need help. And just because they didn't pray it the way we say they ought to pray it don't mean they didn't pray it. These guys committed their lives to him to the point where they lost their lives for him. They were committed to Jesus and they remembered the time. Michael Jackson didn't say it first. John the Apostle said, he said, I remember the time when I fell in love. I remember the time. Well, point number two, you'll tell others 
Oh, look at verse 40. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Can can I tell you what I don't see in the text? I don't see the Lord commanding Andrew to go tell somebody. I don't see the Lord telling, now, now, now go out and tell somebody you spent the day with me. Now, he's going to give a commission later in Matthew 28 where he expects his disciples to go into all the world and tell folk about him. But I love the fact that what happened for Andrew was a natural response to being with someone who was amazing. Uh, He didn't need Jesus to say, now go tell people. He's like, I got to tell people because I've been with Jesus. We've been waiting for him. This is him. He's here. And Andrew says, the first thing I want to do is go find my brother. I want to do evangelism, if you will, not because I'm under obligation or a command, but I want to do evangelism because it's natural. I met somebody that I've never met before. And I love this. I love this. Watch this. He goes and tells his brother Simon. He said, we found the Messiah. We found the anointed one. We found the long-promised deliverer. And he came to that conclusion without Jesus having done one miracle. Uh, 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 uh. One more. I got to say it again. He came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah, not because he saw Jesus do a miracle, but because he walked and talked with the man. You see, we got some people who only want to come to God or believe God based on how many miracles he can do. They only want to worship him based on what he does and not on who he is. And we got to have a kind of faith that says, I know that my God can raise the dead. I know that my God can perform a miracle. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to doubt him. I know he can show up. I know what he can do. But I'm not going to try to manipulate God that if he doesn't do this miracle, then he's not God and he's not good. Uh -uh, uh Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Right here, you see this man, he knew this is the Messiah. Haven't seen one miracle yet. Oh, but he's going to see a few now. (laughs) I hope you believe in him. I hope you trust him because of who he is and not because of what he does. Oh, he can do a lot. But man, fall in love with God, his nature, his person, his essence, his power. Thank you, Jesus. They were impacted by his person before ever witnessing his power. Mm. But finally, after you remember it, you'll tell some other folk, but you'll also begin to discover your purpose. Look at verse 42 again. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. This is Jesus, quote unquote, meeting Peter for the first time. I say, quote unquote, because Jesus is talking to Peter like he had met him before. 
He hadn't met him yet in time. He, he's meeting him in time, but from eternity. Jesus knew Peter, or Simon, I should say, before Simon was even born. Jesus knew about Simon before Simon ever knew about himself. See, see this goes back to the omniscience, that God knows everything. He doesn't need to be informed or filled in by man. He, he knows everything. And that's why he could look at this man coming to him and say, you are Simon. I know who your father is. You're the son of Jonah or the son of John. I know who you are. I see who you are and I see who you will become. Mm -mm -mm. I see where you are and I see where you will be. I know everything about you and I still want you. <laughs> I know you will fail me and I still choose you. I, I, did I move too fast? Did I go too far too fast? I know y'all saying, can we sit in this minute? But Jesus goes beyond that minute into the future when he meets this guy in time and space for the first time. He says, I know your name, which means I know who you are. I know that you tend to speak before you think. Oh, I know everything about you. I know, Peter, Simon, that you are spontaneous. That's a strength, but it's also a weakness. I know, Simon, that you can be a violent dude because you're packing right now. I can see under that robe a sword print. You packing. I know how violent you are and how violent you can be. I know, Simon, that you cuss. <laughs> He's walking towards Jesus. Jesus, I, I, I know about you, man. I know you're one of them cussing Christians. I know because there's a couple of them because they're in process. There was a time I used to say, we're in process. <laughs> but, but anyway, but God knows about them cussing saints. Because you know, Peter, when he said, I, I won't deny you, Lord. And Jesus like, yes, you will. You'll do it three times before the rooster crows. And Jesus, Peter is out there and the servant girl comes to him. Do you know him? No, I don't know him. So another girl comes to him. Do you know him? No, I don't know him. Then a third time, a group comes to him and says, yeah, yeah, yeah. We recognize your accent. You with him. And he said, no, I'm not with him. I'm not blankety, blankety, blank, boop, beep, beep, boop, boop, with him. He cussed. And Jesus is like, yeah, I still choose you. I still want you. And I know even though you will deny me, I'm speaking to you that when you come back, strengthen your brothers because, because, listen to this strong tower. The Lord is saying to us, there's more grace in him than there is guilt in us. There is more mercy in him than there is mess in us. There's more saving power in Jesus than there is sin in us. There's more love in him than there is lust and lasciviousness in us. There's more faithfulness in our God 
than there is fear in us. Remember now, he, he's the one in the yoke with us that's doing the bulk of the pulling. We walk with him and work with him and he has taken the load upon himself, which is why 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there is no temptation that will overtake us that is not common to man, but God is faithful who will not put more on us than we can bear. How can we bear this heavy load? Because he's the one in the yoke pulling the bulk of the load. So there's more grace in him than grime in me. There's more faithfulness in him than fear in me. That's why I've got to sing the hymn, he walks with me and this kind of God talks with me and, and he's telling me that I'm his own with all of my junk. He still loves me unconditionally. How can you not serve a God like this? He doesn't law me into obedience. He loves me into obedience. Romans chapter 2, 4 says that don't you know that it's his mercy, his kindness that leads us to repentance? He will love you so well, you have no choice but to do right. That's who I'm walking and talking with. He has a way of picking up scrubs to be on his squad. And he also picks up mavericks. Peter was a maverick. He looks at him, he says, your name is Simon, but I'm going to give you a nickname. I'm going to call you Cephas. You know how when you give somebody a nickname, that's a way of showing affection and endearment. And Jesus said, we're going to call you Rock or Rocky. But before I get there, we got to look again at the fact that Jesus knew that this man was a maverick. And a maverick is someone who bucks the system. A maverick is someone who does not fit into a box. A maverick is viewed as being unruly and wild. Christians are afraid of mavericks, especially when they want to join the church. But Jesus welcomes mavericks because he sees what they can become as he breaks them. And he harnesses that power and all of that personality, that creativity, he harnesses all of that for his glory. He welcomes wild folks. He welcomes you and me. He welcomes thugs, pimps, and prostitutes. He welcomes gangbangers and drug dealers. He welcomes folks that don't fit anywhere. He loves the misfits. In the book, Passing It On, written by the late Dr. Miles Monroe. Dr. Monroe said, Jesus, the greatest mentor of all time, embraced mavericks. Simon Peter was not only Jesus' most challenging maverick, but Jesus chose him to take responsibility for the future of the movement. Monroe says something here. Not only was this dude wild, but Jesus is like, I'm going to, when I leave, I'm giving you specifically the keys of the kingdom. The whole church has it, but you're going to kick this thing off on the day of Pentecost. And I'm going to leave the future of this movement in the hands of a cusser. In the hands of somebody who, who almost committed murder, but thank God only cut the man's ear off. 
I'm going to leave the future of the Christian movement in the hands of a weak and broken, spontaneous, impetuous, failing man. Because God's kingdom grows best through weak people, through broken jokers. My God. You see, Peter would fail, but that didn't disqualify him from Jesus using him. You see, failing Christ doesn't make us a failure. Failing Christians, or rather failing Christ, makes us a more capable and effective minister of the gospel of grace, which is why Jesus says, after you deny me, turn back and strengthen the brothers. And Jesus says, uh, your name's going to be Cephas. You will grow into your name. Because the name Cephas means rock or steady or strong. And he says, right now you're Simon, but let me pronounce over you identity and who and what you will be. I see you as a rock. I see you as someone steady and strong. I know you don't see that right now, but I see it in you. So Jesus is speaking his purpose to him. He sees strength in him. And Peter would be the one who would go from being a pebble to being a rock, to being stable, to being strong, who could be used by God to not only preach the gospel to the lost, but in Acts 15, preach the gospel to the church and say, put down the yoke of legalism. You got to be strong to do that. So Jesus says, homeboy, I see strength in you. I see a rock in you. And beloved, can I say this as I close? The Lord sees a rock in you as well. He sees strength and stability in you as well. I know you are weak. That's a good thing. Because God's power is made perfect in your shortcomings, in your failings, in your weakness. That's what makes grace amazing. And so Paul could say, I take pleasure in my infirmities and in the things that, that I don't do well because I need God to show up in my life. So although you may speak to yourself and say that you can't do it, and although people around you may speak to you and they may not see your future potential, that you are a stable person, that you are a rock, I want to tell you what Peter said to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, the man whose name is Rocky, he said, you also as living stones are being built up in a spiritual house, a, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the man who was called a stone turns around and says to other folks, you too are stones. Y'all are living stones. And God is doing what? Building you up. So I'm talking today to some red stones, white stones, black stones, brown stones, yellow stones, Methodist stones, Presbyterian, Pentecostal stones, uh, stones uh, who are rich and stones who are poor. I'm talking to, to people who, who the Lord puts something in you that he's going to use to bless others. There's stability in you. And God wants you to be strong today. You see, the same Lord who invited Andrew, John, and Peter to come and see is the same Lord who's still inviting you and me 
to come and see, to come and hang out with him, to come and remain with him. Because the Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 4 that when they were persecuting the apostles, it says they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So when you remain with him, when you abide with him, you'll remember it. You'll tell other people about him. And you will begin to discover your purpose. But will you answer the call? To, when he says, come and see, will you answer the call to come and see? Because when he says, come and see, he's saying, come and watch. Come and observe. Part of our problem today is we spend too much time watching people who say they follow Christ as opposed to watching Christ himself. You see, an aspect of discipleship is observation. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go out into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching those folks of all the nations to observe what I've commanded you. Teach them to observe. Teach them to watch you put the kingdom in practice. Let them watch. Let them observe your life of weakness and brokenness. Observation, observation. Because the Christian life is not about behaving. The Christian life is about beholding. When you behold, it'll change your life. But it's not about you got to behave. No, no, let, let's scrap that. Jesus is saying to you, come and watch me. Come and observe. Come and behold. And if you stay the same <laughs> after watching Jesus, I don't know anyone who has. He's that strong that he can say, just come on and watch me. Because he knows what will happen to you. So let me be like Andrew right now who brought his brother Peter to Jesus. And I want to invite and bring someone to Jesus who may not know him. You've never met him. I, I invite you to go to Jesus, to go and observe, to go and see, to give your life to him. But I also want to extend this virtual invitation not only to people who've never come to Christ, but I want to invite people who have come to Christ but have strayed away. I'm asking you to come and see again. So to the unbeliever, come and see for the first time. He will rock your socks and blow your dome. I'm telling you now. I'm telling you now. <laughs> you better try Jesus. I'm telling you now. It'll be the best decision of your life. I'm telling you. He, woo! But for those of us who know him and we've drifted, we've come under the yoke of the empire, the yoke of politics, the yoke of legalism, the yoke of man-centered uh, works-based righteousness. I, I, I want to tell you, come out of that and, 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 and come and see Jesus again. And if that means you got to leave a church where you are, an environment where you are, to come and breathe the fresh air of the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus again, you do it. 
trusting that he will take care of you and lead you to where you need to be. But don't let anyone or anything, including yourself, get between you and your relationship with the God who loves you dearly. So come and see for the first time. Come and see again. Father, thank you for this word. Touch lives. Thank you that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to a knowledge of the truth, that you want fellowship. You invite fellowship. This is not religion. This is relationship. Thank you, God. Touch folks in Jesus' name. Amen.